I'm Danny Stover, and this is Today in TO, a podcast that takes a look at the biggest stories in the city and connects the dots on what's going on. And out of a billion dots, there is one worth more than all the others. And rapper Post Malone bought it. On today's episode, you'll learn more about what happened over the weekend at Earl's Court Park at a festival meant to celebrate the city's Eritrean community. Also, the story behind this ultra-rare Magic the Gathering card that made a Toronto man a multi-millionaire. Plus, if you like those cards, maybe I could interest you in the history behind Canada's largest sports card show. It got its start right here in Toronto. That's all coming up on Today in T.O. that the largest diaspora of Eritreans in Canada live in the GTA? In fact, both the Eritrean Canadian Community Centre and the Eritrean Canadian Association of Ontario are located right here in Toronto. Eritrea is part of the Horn of Africa and is bordered by Sudan and Ethiopia and boasts 1,000 kilometres of coastline along the Red Sea. Now, over the weekend here in Toronto, violence erupted at a festival at Earl's Court Park at St. Clair and Lansdowne as it was crashed by anti-government protesters. It escalated to the point that eight people were injured, suffering non-life-threatening injuries, and a ninth person was stabbed and was seriously injured. After this police intervention, the festival, organized by Eritreans, resumed briefly. But then more protesters arrived and clashes spilled out onto St. Clair West. It was at that time, around 10 p.m. on Saturday, 12 hours after it all started, that the city of Toronto revoked the festival's license. Now, depending on how much you know about the history of Eritrea, it may or may not surprise you to learn that both the festival's organizers and protesters hail from Toronto's Eritrean-Canadian community. That may sound complicated, but... Well, look, it's not really a complicated story at all. Uh, the Eritreans fought for 30 years for their independence. They were led by President Isaiah Safawerki. Uh, comes to power in 1991. They get independence in 1993. And guess what? Instead of producing the democracy they'd all been promised and hoped for, he turns it into the most repressive state in Africa. And believe me, that's doing something. Uh, they have never had an election. They have no parliament. They have no independent judiciary. And people, frankly, are thrown into wars. There's just been one in northern Ethiopia. And they flee from the country in order to find sanctuary. But when they get abroad, they find that the, the government, the regime, still comes after them. And that is what these protests are about. That was Martin Plout, author of the book Understanding Eritrea. So the government still comes after them. For what exactly? They have to pay a 2% tax if they want to have anything to do with it. If you want a birth certificate, if you want to sell your grandmother's home, anything, you have to pay a 2% tax going back to the date you arrived in the country. Now, you can imagine these are huge sums of money for poor people, many of whom are asylum seekers or refugees. They've saved up a little bit of money and the regime just takes it. And these people mm -hmm. are, who now live in exile are furious that the people who, are, who have been treating them so badly back home, then come and put these on these huge festivals in the Sheraton, for goodness sake. 
Now, demonstrators opposed to the festival ended up moving to the Sheridan Hotel on Sunday, where the festival was holding another event. This area had heavy police presence all day long and into the evening. However, this situation is not necessarily unique to Toronto. The same story has been played out in the Netherlands, in Germany, in Sweden, and here in Britain as well. And the Eritrean regime have a group called Eri Blood, and they literally go after anybody who steps out of line. They align to the ruling party, and they not only spy on people, they would attack them if they protest. And people, the young Eritreans who have fled their own country, taken huge risks to get out of it. There's a shoot-to-kill uh, policy on the border. They die in the Mediterranean. They starve to death in, and, and a, a drought in the, in the Sahara. But they do manage to get out, and then they still find they're treated this way. That's why there's so much anger. Dr. Awet Weldemichael is of Eritrean descent. He's also a professor at Queen's University and an expert on the Horn of Africa. When you think of these summer festivals, you might think of traditional foods and a celebration of music and games for the kids. So going back to the festival at Earl's Court Park for a moment, was this a political event? It, it is, it is, and that's the bone of contention here. It's not that there are no cultural aspects to it, there are social aspects to it, there are kids' soccer games, there are barbecues and social events around it, but the centerpiece of the whole thing is not only political, but it's also organized by the ruling party right. in Eritrea, and that is the issue here. And Eritreans, whether they oppose the, the government back home or, or support it, have the right to celebrate their culture, have the right to get together, um, but they have to do it in such a way that it respects the rule of law of the host country. And, and as Eritrean Canadians right now, both the opponents and the supporters of the regime back home has to recognize that we are in Canada, a land of rule of law, and we have to do what we seek to achieve within the parameters of the Canadian legal system. Resorting to violence will not help anybody's cause. Yet, here we are. Here we are indeed. And so what does Dr. Weldermichael think is needed moving forward? What is needed for all sides to recognize that this is not the battlefield for, for their human rights. This is not the battlefield for keeping the regime in power. This is Canada. We have to live by the rule of law in Canada. And, and our Canadian neighbors also deserve to live in peace. And so recognizing that, we have to come to the table as a single community of a shared heritage that we have a lot in common, a lot that brings us together than divide us. We have a lot of opportunities, shared opportunities, and shared challenges as a diaspora community. We can come together around these issues and amicably resolve whatever outstanding or sticking points that remain. If an individual Eritrean wants to support any kind of political system back home, that is their prerogative. But when they do it, uh, on your face and gaslighting former victims, you cannot expect the victims to, to, to be silent either. Is there anything the Canadian or provincial government can do to prevent something like this from happening again? That's, that's the challenge of policymakers. That's the challenge of Ottawa as well as, as, well as uh, the province of, of Ontario. The Canadian government, the federal Canadian government, recognized that Eritrea is one of the worst human rights violators, which is why it has been granting protection to, to the refugees who fled the regime. Yet, 
that same regime is allowed to hold these festivities to spread its word and and raise funds and do whatever it is that it does. And so um, Ottawa needs to make up its mind, but it has to do so without infringing on the rights of Eritrean Canadians to celebrate their culture, to be together and and have festivities. So it's a, it's a tricky balance to find, but it's not an impossible one. We have a lot of wise men and women. We have young and old leaders in the community on both sides who uh, listen to the voices of reason. And I don't expect outsiders to come to resolve this problem for our community. Our community has to come together, has to come to its senses. There are a lot of uh, people that I know in Toronto right now who are speaking to both sides to calm down the situation and find a sustainable solution taking into consideration that we are a single community, shared heritage, shared future as Canadian Eritreans. Moving on to another big Toronto story that has nothing to do with politics and everything to do with Magic the Gathering. There's no easy segue. So coming up after this, you'll hear the story behind the super rare card that turned a Toronto man into a multi-millionaire. Thanks to Post Malone. Seriously, you can't make this stuff up. That's next. Are you into Magic the Gathering? Would you say you're obsessed with it? I'm kind of obsessed with this story, and I have never cared so much about Magic the Gathering before in my life. Do you remember hearing about this back in June? A guy in Toronto sold an ultra-rare one-ring Magic the Gathering card to none other than rapper Post Malone for $2.64 million. The seller's name is Brooke Trafton, and he's a retail worker in Toronto. He's a cashier and forklift operator, and he's been playing Magic the Gathering since he was a kid. If you aren't familiar with the game, it's basically a tabletop and digital collectible card game. Please don't come for me if I explain this badly, but it came out in 1993 and was created by a guy named Richard Garfield. You win by casting spells and attacking your opponent with creatures, and the objective is to reduce their life total. A report out of MIT actually studied Magic the Gathering and found it to be the most complex known real-world game there is. Not even a computer or algorithm can determine how any one game will end. As of 2018, Magic the Gathering had approximately 35 million players and over 20 billion Magic cards were produced between 2008 and 2016. So that's a lot of cards to be finding one of one that's worth a couple million bucks. Now you may be wondering where Brooke found the card. I bought the box from Face to Face Games in like on the Danforth area, and uh, I brought it home. I, I opened a couple boxes. It was in the second one I found. As soon as I opened it, I knew. I like it was the it was the card. I knew it was life changing. He knew it was life-changing, and Brooke also knew... I knew there was already, like, talks on the internet, and there was bounties uh, for the card. Like, it started at, you know, a couple thousand, and then it went up to one million by the time I pulled it. After I took the videos and pictures, you know, I started doubting. Like, there's no way that someone like me found something so 
so magical and expensive and you know I'd, I'd sent pictures and videos to my friends and you know I'm like is this it like did I, is this actually real and you know I even called the store that I bought it from and I explained like how do I you know how do I tell if it's it's legit and even he thought I was like pranking him in a phone call so this one ring card was part of a collaboration between Magic the Gathering and J.R.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings novels. There's a card called Soul Ring, and it's a very common staple in a lot of decks. And they printed like a whole bunch with different writing with like, you know, just like the books, like some for the elves, some for the humans, some for the dwarves. And again, in relation to the book, they decided to make a one of one ring, the one ring. And the one of its kind, uh, serialized, the only artwork, it's, it's one of a kind. What would you do? I wouldn't think to do this, but Brooke got a lawyer. He hooked up with a marketing PR company called The Notable Group, headed by a woman named Carly Posner. My first meeting with, with Carly and, and my lawyer, Jessica, we, we sat down and, you know, like this is a, you know, once in a lifetime thing. It was almost a golden ticket really want this thing like what do you want to see out of this and in whatever you want like dream big and I, I straight up told them I said you know my dream would be to either meet Post Malone or to sell it to him. At that point though this was really a blue sky goal. Brooke says this wasn't even an option on the table and in fact they were exploring other interested buyers and had all but finalized a deal with someone else. That's when Post Malone came to Toronto. It was the Thursday of his concert in Toronto. I got a phone call from, from Carly and she, she said, where are you? I said, oh, well, I just punched into work like five minutes ago. She said, you, you need to find a way to get out of there. Grab the card. We're going to go meet Post Malone today. So Brooke gets off work. He's carrying this one-of-a-kind card in his backpack on the TTC. He goes backstage to meet Post Malone. He was the most humble person I ever met he was just amazing we we, you know started talking and you know he was excited just to see it first and foremost and you know then he asked me like well what are the current offers like what what does it look like and I told him and he paused for a second he looked at me and he goes what's your favorite commander uh commander's uh a format to play the game where you make a deck themed off of your commander so I actually snuck that backstage with me, and I, I said, I said to him and Carly, I said I brought it with me. Like, oh, pulled it out of the box, I handed it to him, and as soon as he looked at my commander, he's, he's like, "Done." Then I'll take the card. And he did take the card for two point six four million dollars. We love a Magic: The Gathering, Lord of the Rings, Post Malone moment with a Toronto twist. Now, I will say there is a small part of me that dies inside when I hear that people have this kind of coin in the first place and that a card that's only about two and a half inches wide and three and a half inches tall could be worth more money than I will probably ever see in my lifetime. Unless, nah, I'm not going to get into Magic the Gathering now. But if card collecting is up your street, maybe you've been to the Sports Card and Memorabilia Expo in Toronto. Producer Glenn Bergonier has got the story behind the largest and longest running sports collectible show in Canada. In light of Post Malone being recently sold, the fabled and long sought after one ring in Magic the Gathering cards, we thought it'd be great to remind you that Toronto 
is a center whenever it comes to collectible cards and memorabilia. But if you are able to merge that with our fascination with sports and athletes, then you'll know that the Sports Card and Memorabilia Expo is Canada's largest and longest running collectible show and only started in the 90s. It was actually in the year 1991, to be exact, that the demand and fascination with sports collectibles really started to take off as an international sensation. In fact, at the time, one of the largest collectible shows was in Anaheim, and that was the National Sports Collectors Convention, and was seen kind of as the industry litmus test. Well, what do I mean by that? I mean that in 1991, for the very first time, that convention was packed with tens of thousands of individual collectors, instead of mainly being attended by corporate entities and distributors and other vendors. And so, when the first expo was held in Toronto, it proved that, yes, we may have a smaller population, and we may care a little bit more about other sports and specific athletes, but it did not mean that there wasn't a clearly growing market in this city for these collectibles. Remember that this was the first of its kind in Canada, and in 1991, over 20,000 people attended the first three-day event. And while in the States, baseball cards may have been considered the most popular, Canadians favored their hockey cards above all, with reports of people standing in massive lines for, not even exaggerating, hours to try to get a hold of an Eric Lindros draft card, which may have cost you about $5 or so, but could be potentially worth as much as $3,000, if not more, depending on its condition. But what could have fueled this collection craze in Toronto? Well, there was actually a kind of a few things going on that led to this, such as the Toronto Blue Jays were basically the talk of Major League Baseball that year, especially with the opening of the Sky Dome and doing very successful that season, or the Argonauts winning the Grey Cup in 91. This was also the last time the Canada Cup tournament was even played. But let's also not turn away from just good old-fashioned greed and get-rich-quick schemes. Because in that time, it was becoming more common for people to be able to sell individual cards, if not entire collections, hefty sums so yeah basically you draw a lot of people in because it's a potential to get money out of it some 30 years later the sports card and memorabilia expo remains a favorite for sports fans collectors and everyone in between the fall edition of the toronto sports card and memorabilia expo will be from november 9th to 12th at the toronto international center and will feature over 200 vendors multiple grading companies to let you know exactly how good your card is and how much it's worth, and tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, of fellow collectors. Okay, sure, collectible cards are cool and all, but uh, you got any queens? Go fish. This podcast is brought to you by 640 Toronto and features audio from shows across the Chorus Entertainment Network. My name's Danny Stover. Today in TO is produced by me, Glenn Bergonier, and David Spargala. David Hunter edited this episode and we thank him for it. Amanda Capito, Jason Chapman, and Chris Dunner are advisors to the show. You know how this works. I say goodbye for now and then you make the promise to join me again next week for a brand new episode and then you make good on that promise and the cycle starts over again and again and again and again and again until we all get sucked into a black hole. At least that is my understanding. Till next time, my Toronto friends, take care. We'll talk soon. <laughs>